0: Brandeis University, welcome to a special post-insurrection episode of Recall This Book. I'm John Plotz. My partner in P.O.D. is Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, Elizabeth.
1: Hey, John. Hey, everyone. Uh,
0: And joining us today is the Chair of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, David Cunningham. Hello, David.
2: Hi, John. Hi, Elizabeth.
0: Hey, welcome back. So, as you know, we usually call on scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. And if you click the link at the bottom of the show page today, you can hear episode 36 where we had just such a conversation with David Cunningham and expert on white supremacist policing, Dan Kreider. But before that, we're going to bring you this unusual conversation recorded on January 11th, so five days after the Wednesday that shook the world. And I heartily hope you'll not be listening to this and thinking, yeah, and also nine days before the fill in the blank. Because today's insurrection, (laughs) post-insurrection episode, he said optimistically, is about what unfolded in the White House and then at the Capitol, and perhaps more importantly, it's about what we can learn from the asymmetrical policing. And I'm borrowing that phrase from Dave, that allowed some motivated white supremacist and far white groups to do what they far right groups, I guess far white wouldn't be wrong either, to do what they did. Um, So, Dave, you've done a lot of work on this. general topic over the years. But your very first book um, from 2004, I think, has the revealing title, There's Something Happening Here, The New Left, The Klan, and FBI Counterintelligence. So maybe we can just start with you know, you're telling us about that period you studied and what you found. And then maybe we can begin to sort of tease out the historic through line that connects that research um, to what's happening right here around us in 2021.
2: Sure. Happy to. Um, the, the research that I did on the FBI focuses on the period between 1956 and 1971, where they had uh, an active set of what they referred to as counterintelligence programs. So they had the, the bad acronym COINTELPRO for those programs and by counterintelligence what they really meant was that these were programs that would go beyond the surveillance and monitoring of groups that they thought were threats to national security and would and would seek to actively disrupt harass, discredit and, and in some cases at least to try to eliminate those groups altogether. So it was a very proactive program that would infiltrate groups that would use what they referred to as dirty tricks oftentimes to try to um, really hinder those groups ability to mobilize and to organize and to act. Um, and you know, one of the things about COINTELPRO is that in the late 1970s, there was a lawsuit against the Department of Justice and More than 50,000 pages of COINTELPRO documents were released. And so among other things, it's a clear window, a very unusually clear window into the operations of a counterintelligence program like this one. So from a historical standpoint, it gives us this window into policing of protest and how uh, agencies like the FBI think of threats and how they then seek to act against those threats. and and can you I became, talk
0: about the can you talk about the asymmetries that you found?
2: Sure. And so, what I became really interested in is that the FBI almost entirely focused on left wing protests. So they had programs against uh, anti war movements and campus protests against the civil rights movement and Black Power Black nationalist groups. Uh, the primary formation of this program was against communist and socialist organizations. Um, but amidst all that, they focused, they had one program focused on what they referred to as white hate groups, which is at the time predominantly the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and so I, I was really interested in how they thought about right-wing protests and how they thought about uh, organized racism in this context. And so when you mention asymmetries, what you really see is the FBI taking a template that they already have and they have 59 field offices around the entire country uh, engaging in these actions. Um, And so they, they take their playbook from COINTELPRO but what they end up doing is tweaking it some in a way that really demonstrates and highlights the predominant orientation of policing agents towards these groups. And and really what that boiled down to fundamentally is that at a deep level, the FBI was seeking to eliminate left-wing threats. So when they saw groups that, whether it be organizing against the war or organizing towards uh, civil rights and uh, racial equity claims, those organizations, they wanted wiped out in effect. They wanted to really eliminate their ability to organize and exist. When they engaged with the Klan, they used a lot of the same tactics, but the overriding motive of that program really was to control the Klan. It was not to eliminate it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand, at least from a policing standpoint, the construction of a threat on the left versus a threat on on the right as a fundamentally racialized category. Um, So, you know, the way in which the FBI predominantly uh, oriented to these groups was through the lens of subversion, right? And so this is really about who is legitimately part of our republic, who who is a valid citizen, and who has the interests of the U.S. at heart, Um, And so when we think about subversion, it's really a claim of illegitimacy. And what you really see, and communism becomes the overt lens for this, but what you really see is the painting of certain groups. And this would be people of color. It would often be, it would also be Jews. If we go back to the twenties and thirties, you could see anti-Catholic sentiment in in this way, is that these racial and ethnic groups were not legitimate citizens of the u.s meaning that they could not be trusted to hold the interests of the nation fundamentally at heart and so when we think about left-wing subversion you know these are categories that are really painted around the the construction of legitimacy that's always a racialized and 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 sort of
1: ethnic right. and often it seems like often um you know Derives its its legitimacy or attempts to derive its legitimacy from not naming race, right? Um, but then you kind of see it, and I mean, to loop in the the capital attack for for a minute, without necessarily only talking about that going forward. Um, you know, when you saw the the rioters calling police traitors, right? It's sort of like there's this. Almost like they're calling back on the history that you're that you identified in your book, where it's like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be trying to wipe us out. Your brief is to, um, you know, maybe provide, maybe channel, maybe regulate, maybe surveil, even, but but not necessarily wipe out. And then you can also see the kind of implicit racialization becoming explicit in that horrible video of the black police officer being chased, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean it's 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 so powerful and resonant in the ways that you're describing here. I mean, what what you really see is when white nationalists are calling police traitors, as you say in 2021. Now, I mean, it's it's really this claim that they're breaking this contract that's really been, um, you know, it active throughout the nation's history. And when you see groups like the FBI, it can be the police today, really orienting to white nationalism or most protest on the right, it's not through a lens of illegitimacy. It's really through a lens of what are the means through which people are pursuing these ends. So when they're policed, it's really about minimizing violence, maintaining some semblance of order, recognizing the legitimacy or co-legitimacy of the police themselves. Mm and so it's it's a fundamentally different lens. Um, you know, so when the police would orient to the KKK in the 1960s, you know, and, and you, you'd see these memos and transcripts, conversations between agents and Klan members, it was never that they uh, have ends that are seen as opposed to the FBI because they saw themselves as mutually patriotic saw themselves as mutually anti-communist, but it was all about, you're going about this all wrong. You know, you need to sort of shift how you're going about it. It was never about the legitimacy of what they were seeking.
1: In Latin America, they would call this a paramilitary organization. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, and actually I was thinking
0: about Northern Ireland too, like the the Ulster Defense Force or something. Like there are these Protestant groups that the that the you know so-called neutral us uh, british army would not rein in because they were fundamentally pursuing the same aims as the british army but they were just doing it in this unacceptably violent way right,
1: right. and in some ways they can do things that the that the you know sort of official state can't do right yeah
2: um, yeah, yeah. So they can be actively useful and at minimum, you know, sort of aligned. And, and the idea of opening space for them is really is is really one that we see across the decades. And you know, I appreciate you both mentioning these kind of global comparisons because I think we tend to think of the US as exceptional as as people tend to do in all ways. Um, but I think this is really uh laying bare a lot of the things that we can more readily understand when we look at other nations and other parts of the world then we see the same thing being echoed through uh the insurrection last
0: week so can Dave you've you, already oh sorry, go ahead Elizabeth
1: can I ask you a question and that you know without um signing on to a narrative of progress in any naive sense do you think that something like the rioters calling the cops traitors is a sign that that, that pact is breaking up or not and like in a way because you know one could argue potentially that if it's if it's not at risk if that pact is solid and one of the things that's kind of um potentially uh effective about it is that it doesn't need to be named right it's sort of the come you know it comes without saying, goes without saying because it comes without saying. Is, is, yeah. uh,
0: Actually, can I add on to that? Because my question, Elizabeth, was very close to that. It was going to be about those tweets that Trump made about you know, protecting the boys in blue, basically. I can't remember the exact words, but th- the moment in which is laid bare the tension of we're the party of law and order, but we've done this thing that is embarrassingly not law and order, like whether that's just right. a kind of tactical blunder or you know, a kind of problematic overlap or whether it actually, yeah, in Elizabeth's to ter- Elizabeth's terms, whether it you know, whether there a real rift opens there that actually has mm-hmm. some encouraging signs.
2: Yeah. I mean this that seems like the key question in a lot of ways. And um, you know, I, I think I wish I could be more optimistic to say that this is creating a rift that is kind of durable and will be, you know, lead to kind of a reformulation of the orientation of, you know, the forces of order institutionally to um, the forces of insurrection here, Um, you know, to my mind, I think if we refer to them as the forces of order, if we think about policing agencies here, I mean, fundamentally they are about order as well as about, you know, the maintenance of these other things that we're discussing. And, and so it does mean that there are limits in the sense, and clearly those limits, um, even though we saw a very weak Uh, and tacit police response at least initially those limits were crossed and I think at that level you're going to see uh, a a kind of line in the sand being drawn Mm. from down the line in terms of policing but I I, I feel like it's uh, we haven't really demonstrated we're at a point to critically interrogate what this means you know to sort of say okay you know, we see what happened last week. We can critique and criticize how the police responded to white nationalists versus how they respond to Black Lives Matter and other sorts of groups. I mean, that has become so evident. You see all the side-by-side photos that people are posting. I mean, it's a point that doesn't even need to be strenuously debated at this point, although it will be, of course. Um, But, I, you know, what we haven't seen yet is that next step, which is to say, well, if that's true, how can we think about the police, not just supporting them more fully through increased funding, not not in terms of creating legislation that more uh, uh, assertively and expansively thinks about domestic terrorism, but actually not making the fundamental assumption that the police can operate in just ways in this politicized field. Um, And I think when we have that conversation at a policy level then we might really be able to take uh, the leverage of this rift and maybe think about institutional right, change. Right. But, yeah, which um, is
1: where the kind of history of it is important, right? Because it seems, and this is the question that we've all been grappling with for for well, from a long time, but sort of a hallmark of 2020 is, you know, is it the sort of bad apples, you know, narrative, or is this something that is like, like inscribed in the DNA of the police of the United States, you know, and so on?
0: Yeah. So cool. can I actually, I mean, Dave, in terms of your own historical knowledge, not just your knowledge of the sort of pro moment, but like looking back over the last 60 years, can you point to moments where you think this did surface as an issue that could have had a national discussion? I mean, I think Timothy McVeigh came to mind for me in terms of like, quote, domestic terrorism. But, um, you know, are there moments that we could point to as maybe potential productive templates for what that conversation could be if we had it nationally?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that we can point to, and I appreciate that you mentioned the the Oklahoma City bombing and and Timothy McVeigh, because you know prior to that was a moment where the government and the Department of Justice uh, made a strategic choice, and you know went from a a lens through which they could target. White nationalists and organized racist as a movement, thinking of this as sedition, so something that's organized, a conspiracy, a movement, to adopting a stance where they prosecute and orient to acts of terrorism at, from an individual basis. So oh, thinking right. of McVeigh as an individual terrorist and right. not tied to a network of organizations, groups, and cells um, that should be targeted as a whole or at the group level. Right. So sedition as a, as, as a uh, collective effort to undermine the integrity and security right. of the nation. And so you see from the 80s into the 90s, th- this move to think about uh, terrorism, not as a seditious conspiracy, but as something that can be uh, tackled at the individual level.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that's a really important shift and we have not, reversed in any way around that
0: um, so Dave, I know that there's not enough information out yet about what the government did and didn't focus on but I mean can you relate that to at least the New York Times has been reporting the very visible sorts of organizing that went on not just in the 48 hours in advance but like months in advance on gab and parlor and whatever else where there was you know let's call it seditious conspiracy there was certainly planning that seems to amount to seditious conspiracy and then the government, is it, you know, overlooking that or not, you know, how, how do you understand that in that context?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I think you're right that that um, and, and this is a place where we see the media playing such an important role because they have done a lot of the work that we would expect that, that uh, the law enforcement agencies to yeah. do is yeah. to trace these individuals to connect them in, in important ways to, to sort of trace back these networks of organizing that go back, you know, weeks and months and, and years in many cases around these kinds of groups. Um, you know, I, I I think the key will be whether they can kind of turn a corner on that and think that it's viable to prosecute uh, around these acts in ways that aren't just isolated to individual arrests and individual prosecutions. And I I haven't seen a move that, that there would adopt that stance. And, you know, I think what happens in the 80s really is that uh, the Department of Justice fundamentally decides that it's that they can't win prosecutions that aren't just oriented to individuals for, you know, kind of discrete criminal or terrorist acts. I don't know if either of you know this book by Kathleen Ballou, which came out three years ago maybe called Bring the War Home.
0: You recommended Uh, it, yeah.
2: Yeah, she documents that move from where the Department of Justice basically thinks that they can't win a case that is about a seditious conspiracy and they just adopt Mm -hmm. that. She discusses that at length, I think. She surfaces a lot of archival material from that era that is really helpful.
1: There's an interesting connection in this conversation to a previous podcast episode um, and the work of Lawrence Ralph. Um, We had him on talking about um, his book, The Torture Letters. And uh, one of the things that was um, from his perspective, distinctive about the um, prosecution and follow-up of um, of the uh, torturers in, within the Chicago police um, was that it was framed as a kind of collective thing that deserved a collective response. And in that way, it was kind of seen as a, um, as akin to things like truth and reconciliation um, commissions in other countries, again, making that sort of more global connection. On the other hand, um, none of the individuals who were responsible for those things ended up going to jail. So there's kind of this interesting balance there.
0: Yeah. Hey, Dave, you know, as We, the last time we spoke with you, we talked about policing and very much emphasized the local dimensions of policing and some of the nuances of the fact that policing came, arose out of different local conditions. And then of course your book is about the FBI and now the current moment that we're discussing you get the capital police who seem to weirdly sit kind of interstitially between local policing and like national organizations like the FBI so can can we just hear your thoughts about that relationship between you know what you've been talking about as policing on the national level versus the local dimensions of sort of you know community based policing
2: yeah, it's it's a good question. And this is an especially complicated situation. You know, people often talk about jurisdictions, but when we move to DC, I mean, jurisdiction, as you're mm-hmm. saying, is a is a complicated and tangled web. Um
0: so complicated.
2: Um, and, and especially in this environment where there was a lot of management of, you know, certain federal forces not seeming uh, to be involved. And you know, there's there's a lot of uh, impression management as well as active policing going on there in terms of who's doing the acting. Um, You know, I I will say, I've been thinking a lot about um, the degree to which kind of local jurisdictions tend to mirror these kind of dynamics that we see more clearly at the federal level. And, you know, I think a lot of what we've been talking about here today about these asymmetries really are mirrored locally quite a bit. And, you know, the, the problem... With understanding this fully in a lot of cases is really just access to the information that we need. You know, policing, among other things, are very—it's uh, a very closed circle in terms of understanding patterns of communication and operational plans and all of these kinds of things. Um, you know, and and one of the things that I think that we see coming out of Charlottesville in 2017 was an effort to lay bare, make that make that more transparent. So there were a set of um, external after action reports after Charlottesville. So we have a sense there. And that was another complicated situation because you have local Charlottesville police, you had campus police at the University of Virginia, but then the Virginia State police were involved. And so you have all these different jurisdictions operating. But one of the things that, that one of the most interesting and important things I think that come out of those reports are the way in which the police kind of constructed their orientation to the threats posed by what they'd always refer to as both sides. You know, they want to protect the the uh, the ability of both sides to express their constitutionally uh, you know, protected rights to speech, etc. So there was all Those that very rhetoric. fine people. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, the police, like our president, very much adopts kind of a a both sides lens. But what was fascinating was the the communication in the two months leading up to Charlottesville in August of 2017, between the two sides, you know, and the way in which they would assess information and solicit information, because they would always be acting on, you know, based on intelligence related mm-hmm. to, uh, I know you can't see air quotes uh, on the on, on podcast, <laughs> but the air quotes there about intelligence, um, you know, information that they would glean from both sides. And if you look at their communication with say, Jason Kessler, who was the organizer of Unite the Right um, mm-hmm. locally, Kessler would come to police headquarters weekly and they would have an operational meeting where the police would go over their plan and Kessler would explain what he was expecting and anticipating and the dynamic with uh, the anti-racist counter-protesters. And so this was a chapter of Black Lives Matter, a group uh, called Surge was the other uh, major organization there. Um, They, for very good reasons, had a very anti-police stance. They felt like the police's ability to communicate with them, and and rightfully so, was a a, uh, means to basically surveil and monitor what they were doing. So they would refuse to meet with the police. And so what the police would use as a stand-in for that are these oftentimes very thinly sourced Um, general assumptions, you know, so you get assumptions around Antifa being present, showing up with fentanyl and and bottles and, uh, you know, concrete filled soda cans. Uh, And they would, they they even circulated many times, this is the the Charlottesville police, uh, the assumption that there would be compensated counter protesters. So going back to the trope on the right right about you know, George Soros and other, uh, presumably other Jews, you know, kind of pulling the string behind this and compensating these protesters, this would be actually circulated within these police intelligence reports as a stand-in for direct communication. Um, And then they would turn around and say, well, we have, you know, we have tried to even-handedly reach out to both sides and glean what we could from both sides as we formulated our operational plan. And so you really see the way in which these asymmetries emerge over these, these really asymmetric Communications that the police have, and the way in which they, the lens through which they assess the information from the left versus from the right in these cases.
1: Right. right.
0: That that is fascinating, Dave. That's amazing. I I, I want to read more about that. Um, do you? Is there a similar story to be told about Michigan and the way the armed protests work around the statehouse there, which is another thing people have pointed to as a kind of, you know, precedent or foreshadowing of of the insurrection
2: yeah i mean, I think it's another example of the latitude, you know and 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 not just the the simple latitude where where there's just space given to groups, but really the latitude that comes from the assumptions of who legitimately can express grievances without severe consequences coming back upon them. and I think you know, it's another example of a severe and, and seditious action that was not treated as such from a policing yeah. standpoint.
0: I was going to say like AK-47 as expression, you know, like, that's, you right.
2: know like,
0: yeah. like, you know, your words are dangerous. If you're a BLM protester, your words are dangerous. But if you're a white protester, your gun is not dangerous. It's just right. an act of expression.
1: Steve, Stephen yeah. Colbert had a live show and he said... Uh, he said, "Good thing it was only white guys with guns. If it were black people with iced teas, it really could have yeah. escalated."
2: Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and you know, these are claims certainly that that uh, people can make historically, and and now it's you know it, we it, it's it's just so evident that. You know, just making it's it's still an open question about whether making that claim will have any impact. But I don't, I can't imagine any kind of clearer expression publicly of these disparities than we've seen over the last several months.
0: And it will be also just to be really cynical. It will be very interesting. You know, President Obama ran into such. Headwinds when he pointed out racial asymmetries in policing, President-elect Biden, before even taking office, has already, you know, foregrounded that as like that was the first thing he said about the protest was to point out to the racial asymmetry. And so, to hear a white president say it, it will be interesting to see, mm-hmm. you know, how what kind of uptake that may be able to have. Um,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree. And it'll be it'll be really interesting to see this debate unfold. And I really hope that that uh, and I expect that pressures on Biden will continue to intensify to not only recognize and call out those distinctions, but really think harder about where they're rooted and what that means to say that we support the police's ability to act and to, um, you know, to support I mean, clearly, Biden is someone who is not in support of defunding the police, and and that's not just moving funds, but even significantly reallocating the funding that that the police have received and holding them accountable in in new ways. and so you know, that seems to me to be the clear uh, implication of all of this. And so you know, wh- what I think a lot of people are waiting to see is whether the kind of you know, recognition and rhetoric that you're mentioning that are, are coming from Biden will actually um, have some teeth from a policy standpoint in terms of how we hold the police accountable.
0: And with that, we will thank Dave for this somber conversation and tell you that recall this book is the brainchild of Elizabeth Ferry and John Plotz. We're sponsored by the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Nye Kim. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. So we recommend that you follow this conversation today with our earlier talk with David Cunningham and Dan Kreider about the racist nature of policing in America. That's episode 36. Also coming very soon, a conversation with Greg Childs, historian of New World slavery and slave uprisings, about what it means to call the capital madness a riot, insurrection or terrorism. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening. <laughs>